my pleasure to welcome back to Christendom an alumnus of our theology major, uh, Deacon Christopher Todd. I have a little bio to share with you about him. Uh, Deacon Todd is an alumnus, as I said, of our theology program class of 2012. He went on to complete a master's degree in organizational leadership and a master's in education from Waldorf University after that. He's just recently graduated magna cum laude from Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril and Methodius in 2022. His professional work currently includes serving as a career fire lieutenant in South Atlanta, teaching as a state fire instructor specialized in leadership theory, and responding with law enforcement officers as police chaplain. He's also currently uh, completing his training in paramedicine. He has the uh, infamous distinction of being the undergraduate who wrote the longest uh, theology senior thesis, I believe, in the history of the department, some 230 pages, if you count the 50 pages of appendices uh, on uh, Dom Alcuin Reed's theory of organic liturgical development as applied to the Second Vatican Council. Uh, while I don't mind the big theses, the credit goes to our estimable founder, Dr. Marshner, for having directed that one. <laughs> I believe it's its, its own volume in the uh, library, if you want to look it up. Uh, and that leads me to the fact that it is no surprise that he has recently published uh, this fine book, Reclaiming Our Inheritance After Vatican II, Leadership Lessons from Eastern Catholic History and Liturgy, related very much to our talk this evening. I think Deacon even brought a few copies of the book with him if you wish to get one of your own. He has a forthcoming book planned for next year, Saving Lawrence, A Firefighter Father's Encounter with Tragedy and Providence. Deacon Todd is a convert from Marxist atheism in 2008, yet last year at the age of 35, he became one of the youngest men ordained to diaconal ministry in the Catholic Church. He currently serves as Ukrainian Greek Catholic, he currently serves the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, the largest of the almost two dozen Eastern Catholic churches. Uh, he brought with him his lovely wife, Katie, also an alumna of the college and their five children between the ages of one and 10. So it is my pleasure to welcome Deacon Todd back. Thank you guys very much. Just to uh, handle a couple of housekeeping things. Around the table, there are uh, a couple of outlines for those of you that are interested. You're welcome to take these on with you. Uh, a number of the documents from Pope Benedict XIV up to Paul VI will just kind of hit and run, so to speak, but these are uh, a reference for you guys to dig into more on your own time. Also attached, there's a few QR codes that I decided to put in, uh, both on the outline as well as in the program to some documents uh, that are available from the Vatican on the Eastern churches that are not always uh, very easy when it comes to trying to locate them. You think today we live in the 21st century with uh, Amazon being able to deliver something in two hours of my thumbprints, and yet there's still a number of documents on the history of the Eastern churches that are still not easily accessible online. A couple of things uh, that we'll get into as far as uh, this lecture real quick. Uh, one of the things that I was asked to consider in giving uh, a talk on the Eastern Catholic churches was to look at the issue of how would I present this to your nominal Christendom audience. Uh, myself as an alum, one of the challenges is going to be to try to step back and build a vision of the church, to build a vision of the Catholic Church that begins in the Old Testament, continues through the New Testament, on into the early period, into the medieval period, 
And I feel that by stepping back, so to speak, to create this vision of how our Lord founded his church will be a very important key in understanding diversity within the communion of the Catholic Church. So if you look at that, a couple of the high points I usually in my teaching like to kind of go over the outline before getting into it so that I've hit some of the topics. Uh, the first one we'll be getting into is starting with Reclaiming Our Inheritance, which looks at Orientalum Ecclesiarum, which is the Second Vatican, Second Vatican Council's document on the Eastern Churches. Then we'll go into some of the issues of the topic called Latinization, kind of the history, Old Testament and New, with a look at our own particular church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And then we'll start digging into some of these papal documents that lead the way to John Paul II. One of the things that's very instrumental uh, in my estimation of looking and trying to present this is you will find in a number of traditionalist circles today uh, a handful of people who will try to see the documents of the Second Vatican Council, whether those on the liturgy or those on the Eastern churches as somehow a kind of rupture from the history of the tradition of the Catholic Church. One area in particular that is very confusing for a number of people is how can Orientalum Ecclesiarum talk about Catholics engaging in intercommunion with Orthodox? And if you do not understand the background and the history that was going on, not only for 2,000 years, but also at the time period of the Second Vatican Council, it becomes very difficult to look at the pontificate of John Paul II and the many documents and writings that he left us to kind of understand how he played a role of a witness of unity at both East and West and how the church should find herself in fulfillment. So with that being said, one of, the, one of the points that we'll pull, and I don't typically like doing lectures like this off the top of my head. Sometimes uh, there are many quotes that I like to be able to put up that some people who would prefer to read rather than hear me speak would be able to enjoy. So one of the quotes from Vatican II's document is that the churches of the East are, as much as those of the West, have a full right and are duty-bound to rule themselves. They have always the responsibility to prepare and preserve their legitimate liturgical right, their established way of life. And if they have ever fallen short owing to contingencies of times or persons, they should take steps to return to their ancestral traditions. Now this conception of what is an ancestral tradition was at the hub of my seminary research at Byzantine Catholic Seminary. And in many regards, it was on the Latin side at the hub of a lot of Benedict XVI's work on the organic development and the integration of the older liturgical rites within the, liturg within the liturgical West. So the question then becomes, what were the fathers of Vatican II talking about? They are saying Catholic churches, parts of the Catholic church had fallen short. What does this mean? What is the challenge to this? And so in my presentation in the work of my book, which I'm quoting from here, all of these quotes were actually pulled from eminent Eastern fathers or modern day Roman Catholic liturgists. But figures such as Father Abbot Boniface Lukes, who's a Ukrainian abbot out in California, to those such as Robert Taft, one of the preeminent historians of the liturgy East and West. And one of the challenges that a lot of these historians of the Eastern churches identified was that after returning to Catholic unity, a number of them struggled with their own identity, whether it was in matters of discipline and law, whether it was in matters of ascetical practices, even the liturgical rites, or in some regards, even the right to exist. And I dig through this extensively uh, in my book, and I'll hit kind of a couple of high points based on the writings of Father Cyril Corlesi that kind of illustrate some of those tensions. 
But let us just say that at Vatican II, one of the key takeaways was that although preserving the truth of the faith, many of the Council Fathers admitted that when it came to their cultural way of life, their prayer, their liturgy, there were issues that needed to be changed. And so this idea that there can ever be challenges within the liturgical practices or otherwise of the church is something that is not new. It's not a traditionalist argument. This is an experience that Eastern Catholics have dealt with for centuries. So with that, we'll move on to where does our identity come from? And one of the fundamental things that separates us as Catholics from Protestants and other non-Christian religions is that we believe sacramentally, that is, in both substance and symbol, that we have a connection to the Last Supper through the liturgical sacramental practices of the church. We believe that we participate in a literal, not only presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, and soul in the Eucharist, but in a interconnected way through apostolic succession back to the apostles themselves. And it is that notion that our Christian identity is not merely one of belief, it is not merely one of something that was defined at councils long ago, but it is a way of life that the new priesthood of Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, passed on to his church. And those apostles passed on to the bishops and to the men that they ordained as they traveled throughout the world. And so one of the quotes that I put in my book is, when we look at questions of renewal or return within the church, it's not about going back and saying, someone did this 400 years ago, therefore it's the way we should do it today. Or someone did this 1,000 years ago, therefore it's the way we did this today. It is ultimately about being willing to receive those things which either come from Jesus Christ and the apostles himself, or those things which are not offensive to the tradition of the church that have been incorporated over the centuries. And one of the last ones that uh, Dr. Meyer was so nice to point out is, it is that incarnational notion that we are not only believers in Jesus Christ, but we are his living mystical body, that we have to understand that how we pray liturgically, both in the divine liturgy or the mass, in the liturgical office, for us called the divine praises or the liturgy of the hours, that is really the divine inbreaking of heaven, and it is how we not only touch God, but are touched by him. So let's begin with the Old Testament, stepping back a little bit. And I start here with a quote from the prophet Ezekiel. And some of you are saying, I thought this was a talk about John Paul II. And when we look at the identity and the particularity or the, the uniqueness of the Eastern Catholic churches, we have to start back with the Old Testament. And a quote here from Ezekiel chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east. And if you read a number of the early church fathers, Many of them would comment that this whole conception of water issuing forth from the temple was a prefigurement of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Come down. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, led me around to the outer gate, that is the gate that faces towards the east. And for those of you who are not familiar, last year I gave a talk at the Ruthenian churches on the liturgical practices during our advent called the Philip's Fast. And if you turn towards one of the Marian feasts that we celebrate, the entrance of the Theotokos, there's this beautiful quote that I want to pull from and illustrate. Let today the heavens above greatly rejoice, the clouds pour down gladness at the mighty marvelous acts of our God. 
For behold, the gate that looks towards the east is born from a fruitless and barren womb according to the promise and consecrated to God as his dwelling is now being brought into the temple as a spotless offering. Who are they talking about? Mary. Mary. Absolutely. And so one of the interesting things I, I illustrate that within our particular office, that is from the office of Vespers, you can see this teaching, this understanding, this presentation of our faith found in the liturgical life, even in something as simple as referencing uh, Ezekiel. Skipping back to our, our main focus. So basically Ezekiel is giving this prophecy that's going to talk about how Gentiles are going to be incorporated. And this is six, seven centuries or so before the time of Christ. You have this reference that of all the 12 tribes of Israel who each had their geographical unity, and Ezekiel goes and talks about where geographically these 12 tribes would be. I have a picture up here on the next slide. He says, in whatever tribe you find that the alien or the foreigner or the Gentile resides, there you will assign him his inheritance. So in the Old Testament, you have this conception that when Israel is restored, there is some conception of a geographical incorporation of the Gentile into particular tribes. It's not just we're becoming part of the one Israel. Israel never rejected its conception of the 12 tribes within its own history. So if we look at this, one of the ways that I explain this is that first Israel was a person, Jacob, then a kingdom built upon the 12 tribes. In the New Testament, the new Israel is also a person, Jesus of Nazareth, who builds a kingdom upon the 12 apostles. And for those who think these conceptions are very foreign, I ask you to turn to the book of Revelation that mentions the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles as the gate and the wall, as the identity of the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem. So in the Old Testament conception, if you were to become a member of Israel, it's not that you would become a member of this nebulous idea. You became a member of a particular tribe. Those Gentiles at the time period who wanted to convert would find themselves as descendants of a particular lineage. We move into the New Testament, we ask the same question, did this ever happen? And one of the things that illustrates this is Acts of the Apostles. For those of you that are working through the New Testament right now, I trust Jayski has been very good at hammering home the First Council, the Council of Jerusalem, to which I, I make a, a brief reference to. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this caused a great dissension. Well, what are you talking about? Jesus Christ has come to redeem Israel. We have all of these people who will not practice circumcision. You have all of these figures who will not respect the various customs and particularities of the Jewish uh, observances. How can they become true members of the church? There's a great scandal. Council is head. Peter speaks up, makes the great statement. There is no distinction between us and them. God has cleansed their hearts by faith. And it has seemed good to both the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So we have this conception in the Old Testament where Gentiles would be incorporated into the 12 tribes somehow, some way. We have this image now of the New Testament where all of the apostles under the headship of Peter have been gathered together and said, if they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we do not want to put things which are more burdensome than are necessary for their salvation upon them. And you have this conception right at the heart of the church leading out into the world. Now, this is a chart that I borrowed from Wikipedia. And if you look, there's a couple of interesting journeys. 
One right here down with the purple that indicates the approximated or estimated belief of Thomas's trips to India. Some were thought uh, to have believed that he may have even gone on to parts of China. Andrew, in our Ukrainian particular tradition, uh, was believed to have gone to Kiev, all the way up to Russia, what is now modern-day Russia, without much success. But we have this conception of, from the very birth of the church, out of Jerusalem, the apostles go everywhere. And they have this mindset of when they're bringing in the Gentiles to allow an accommodation for things that were not offensive to the saving doctrine of Jesus Christ. We are no longer a Jewish church. We are now a nation of nations. And so this tension becomes a big issue. One of the early tensions after this would become Gnosticism and many other issues within the first centuries. So we ask the question, well, what about early church uniformity? And so we look now briefly, I pull up St. Justin Martyr, second century, who talks about the liturgical life, the celebration of the Eucharist in the second century. And one of the interesting things that was very beneficial studying the development of the Roman liturgy at my time here at Christendom was finding out with Justin Martyr and many others that for the first handful of centuries, the Catholic Church no more went around with missiles than Protestants think Jesus Christ went around with Bibles. Much of what was celebrated in the life of the church was done from oral tradition, from oral memory. And Justin Martyr bears witness to the fact that there was a gathering, and he also describes this uh, more intimately in other aspects with a clear indication of what we would believe uh, today in the Eucharist. But there's this conception of as long as time permits, each according to this ability. And so as you think of these apostles going throughout the world, they are taking whatever symbols, whatever customs, whatever way of explaining the gospel to the people in these various nations in order to bring them into faith in Jesus Christ. That is part of how the church is being built up in the first centuries. Another early church martyr, St. Ignatius of Antioch, talks about the importance of being united with the bishop. Now, the background of Ignatius was he was dealing with the early church heresy at the time um, that dealt with a denial of the Eucharist. Some would suspect um, Gnosticism, this kind of anti-materialist vision of, of Christianity, was rampant. And one of the things that he was talking about here is the importance of the particular Christian's unity with the bishop. And he gives these, be united with your bishop. So do nothing without the bishop and the presbyters. Let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope, in love and in joy undefiled. Follow the bishop even as Jesus Christ does the Father and the presbyters as you would the apostles. Reverence the deacons. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. And interestingly enough, I believe it was Ignatius of Antioch along with a number of others that was very influential in darker marchers on consideration eventually of Catholicism with the conception of the construction of the church and the hierarchy. Now one of the challenges you'll find is there is not an emphasis in a way that we would have in the second century of the papacy. Now, the truth may be the same. The truth is the same. But this conception that we have today of a Vatican bureaucracy with various agencies that oversee all of this was very foreign. And in the early church, One's connection to Jesus Christ was based upon their connection to the bishop. Why? Because their connection to the bishop was their connection to succession, was their connection to the apostles. And one of the other defining aspects of that was the bishop's connection with each other. It was never either or, but always a both and. 
So as we move through the centuries, we turn towards St. Augustine. And a beautiful letter, letter that you can find online, he wrote to a young priest who had been troubled uh, at the time period. Um, the Roman church, I believe, fasted on Saturday, as well as Wednesday and Friday. And other churches in various parts of the Mediterranean did not observe that practice. And so there is this priest writing to and preaching against Castellan saying, well, it's in the Church of Rome that we observe these fasting practices and woe to anybody else within the church who does not follow the Church of Rome in these customs of, customs of fasting. And Augustine writes back to Castellan and says, uh, for those things concerning which the scriptures have laid no, de no de definite rule, the customs of the people of God or the practices of their fathers are to be held as the law of the church. If we choose to fall into a debate about these things and denounce one or the other because of differences, we will have an endless debate. So for the Chester Bellock Debate Society, if you would love endless debates, pick something on custom. <laughs> but there's this conception here that, again, as the apostles went, preached the gospel, baptized, brought people into the practice of the church, and then ordained men in those communities, there is this respect for various aspects of their custom, various aspects of their life that were not offensive to the gospel. And so this practice, this diversity, back in the time of Augustine, even through the time of the medievals and Aquinas, was never seen as offensive to being Catholic. Aquinas and Summa would say, custom has the force of law, abolishes law as the interpreter of law. To a certain extent, the mere change of law itself is prejudicial to the common good, because when a law is changed, the binding power of the law is diminished. Think about that. As we pray, we are developing virtues, habits. And as we go about changing those habits, because it may be a broad idea to do this or may not be a broad idea to do that, there is, in a certain sense, an inherent danger of disconnecting the divine from the human. This conception of changing habits is why Catholic missionaries found it so important throughout the history of the church to sever connections with pagan rituals when they would come into an area, because you want to try to sever those links with the divine. But in Catholic symbolism, even changing things sometime does put at risk those who may be habited and may not understand why. That's why the church in her centuries has been very hesitant when it comes to change. As Father Robert Taft would say, the church is very snobbish when it comes to change in matters of liturgy. But this kind of leads us up to what I would call the pentarchy, which were the five primatial sees, the five early sees. These were the ordering or the normal, uh, so to speak, courts of appeal, the oversight of bishops in particular areas. Jerusalem, who John Paul II would call the mother of all churches, Antioch, Rome, Constantinople, and Antioch. And so if we kind of take a look as the gospel spread out, as various men were ordained and served various communities, eventually the church structure would oversee and place oversight into these five primary areas to oversee the bishops and the activities in other areas. This is estimated at about 560 or so, and then we come up to about 1,080 at the time of schism. You can look here, one of the big challenges that was affecting the Christian church was what? The rise of Islam. It spread into Spain, North Africa, even into modern day Turkey. But with this as the kind of background, we see that there was a certain continuity you would find of the Western Rite, although there was no uniformity at all that we would think of. One of the interesting things that we have to try to envision when we go back to 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago, is there were no airplanes, there were no TVs, 
There were no cell phones that I could FaceTime with somebody in China today. Live stream, I could email out and send everybody in the entire world what was going on. You had to get on a boat and travel somewhere, maybe that boat sank, maybe it didn't. Or you'd have to write letters. It would be very expensive and require specialists. So this idea of uniformity within even the disciplines within the particular area of Rome and the Western Rite was not a fact. A quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, liturgical traditions of the rites presently in use are seen to be the Latin, we call it the Roman Rite, which you can also find in local churches uh, such as those of the Ambrosian Rite. You'll find the Norbertine Fathers out in California and the Benedictines have their own particular liturgical customs. Certain feast days are a little bit different. Their musical hymnody is very different. Um, and now one category that was left out of this is the Ordinariate, the uh, Chairs of St. Peter. I commonly call the Ordinary Catholic Church, which was the worldwide diocese set up for Anglicans who became Catholic and wanted to worship within the Catholic tradition according to an Anglican custom. And they also mentioned various other particular traditions. Right? So you see that there's con this conception between church hierarchy of sorts between the bishops and the particular traditions, the rituals that they were given to them. And one of the things that's customarily given to priests and bishops upon their ordination are copies of those liturgical manuscripts that they are bound to uphold. So our church in particular falls, uh, we call it the Church of Kiev, the daughter church of Constantinople. Part of that is because Kiev up here received its faith from Constantinople. Therefore, it's ritual identity and the rest of that. The history and the particular tradition there was under the influence of St. Vladimir the Great. I think he had like five wives at the time, and there's a number of uh, maybe vulgar kind of descriptions of his concerns about uh, some of the religions that he investigated. Um, Judaism he rejected. Islam he rejected. Part of that was this quote of, you know, drinking is the joy of all of Rus. We cannot have a religion that prohibits drinking. Um, uh, I said, no, we cannot do Islam, no. Um, there are also some experiences with the papal envoy in Germany, but his envoys that returned back from the great cathedral in Hagia Sophia wrote, we no longer could know whether we were in heaven on earth. We did not know how to speak. Uh, in the days back before Russia's aggression, you'd say, you know, in certain monastic practices of the West, you have this like very refined feminine attitude liturgically, this noble simplicity as it's often been described. Whereas in the Greek tradition, it's like big Russian woman makes you know, you feel very warm and, you know, she takes care of you. You know, liturgically, there's these, this conception. And that sensualness of the Greek liturgy was influential in converting a part of the world that had never received Christianity for a thousand years in spite of Andrew, St. Andrew going all the way up there. This leads us to a couple of challenges at this point in the question of churches or churches. And so as we look at the issue or the top of, ap of apostolic succession, we come to believe that the Catholic Church is a communion of churches because she is a communion of bishops. That is to say, my participation in the mystical body of Christ, like my participation in humanity or Fido's participation in dogness, is not the participation in a concept. It is the flesh and blood being with a connection with ancestors. I am no more a human without the lineage of my father and mother and their parents and their parents. Well, we as Christians are no more Christians without our incarnational connection to the church. And that is ultimately rooted in apostolic succession. And if you look at aspects of the catechism of the Catholic Church, one of the things that it emphasizes is that in the day-to-day -day affairs, and in truth, 
there's nothing wrong with saying that the bishops are the particular heads of their church. They are the fullness, sacramentally, of Christ. Many Catholic errors throughout history were based on saying it's one or the other. It's God, man. Mary the mother, Mary the virgin. It's a bishop or a pope. We have bishops or we have, you know, Peter. It's not, it's not either or. The church would believe it is both and. One of the other things that we kind of build into this issue, and I, I pull this from a great quote from Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger on the eve of his election, was talking about substantial continuity in the West. And one of the things that he talks about substantial continuity is rejecting this conception that in the tradition, the customs, the prayer practices, the feast days of the church, they are not passed on like babies in a test tube. Oh, well, you know, I like my wife's blue eyes, and, you know, I really wish she had like kind of like an auburn red hair, so we're going to kind of manufacture the baby the way that I want it. And liturgically, in the transmission of life of the church, it was never, well, this is what's essential, just the form and matter. There is this organic transmission in the rites of the church. And one of the things that he had talked about is after the Second Vatican Council, one of the challenges with a lot of liturgists would basically see the idea that we can keep this core, this substance and form, this form and matter, and that's all that's really essential. You can find some aspects of that theology have their roots in uh, the fundamentals of Catholic dogma, which points to the truth of form and matter, but we don't want to reduce that as saying, therefore, everything else is not part somehow of the church's custom and church's tradition. So that conception of, yes, form and matter and the perception of validity is important, but more than validity is important. And so when we look at rites or churches, one of the things is when we speak of a rite, we're speaking of a written down form, a written down account of what is prayed, what is observed, the disciplines. When we speak of churches, we're speaking of the actual living mystical body of Christ, which is using these particular rituals. But our connection is both. We're connected through the ritual forms, but ultimately our connection is through the bishops and the successors to the apostles. And so this is kind of the background to the cross of unity that I talk extensively about in my book. Uh, I build predominantly from Father Cyril Korlewski, who was a very pious uh, son of a very pious Jansenist in South France, uh, who encountered the Greek office of Vespers one night and eventually said, I'm going to become a Greek Catholic priest. And well enough, he did. Studied with the Melkites and eventually became uh, the head of one of the congregations for the Vatican that was set up at the time. Some of the causes that he listed of challenges of preserving our own particular identity in the East are going to be ignorance about the West, ignorance of the West about the East. Some of the challenges are, for instance, in the, the reunion of the Ukrainian church, there's a very small handful of Catholic bishops, Orthodox bishops, that said we're going to become Catholic. And in various other aspects, the Armenians, the Italo-Greeks, many of the other Eastern churches, they were always minorities. So that meant they dealt with legal pressure, social pressure, and that also meant that in times of persecution in our own Ukrainian church, uh, when the Soviets are coming after you, it's a whole lot better just to imitate the Romans than to just be left completely on your own. And so these tensions, along with the cause of cause, this great schism of 1054, are various factors. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is I go through and look at the issues of mobility, which we deal with today, of how people moving across oceans in a matter of days challenges people to preserve their faith. <clears throat> so that leads us up to this great question. I'm going to take kind of a break. 
How many of you are familiar with, have ever been to a liturgy or liturgical service of the Eastern Catholic Churches? Raise your hands. Okay. Most all of them are, uh, yes, Ms. Marsh, right? <laughs> Most all of them are what? Well, what, what particular churches are you familiar with? <coughs> Ukrainians, Ruthenians? Melkites. In, in this particular part of the states, that's pretty much those churches of like um, the Greek Byzantine tradition, the Ruthenians, the Ukrainians, and Melkites are pretty much what you will find. Myself, I profess my own ignorance uh, in a lot of details of the Syro-Malabar tradition that traces its roots uh, culturally back to St. Thomas in India. And so I don't wish to speak in these areas uh, for other particular churches, uh, but one of the challenges is when we come to looking at church teaching, we don't want to ignore some of the background of some of the tensions. One of the first popes, uh, papal documents that a lot of people will reference today is Alitesun. There's a beautiful quote that's hidden that I did not put up in there where uh, he even talks about Greek Catholic priests when they're in the West uh, or in the States are free to celebrate according to their customs and traditions. And you'll find that although that may be present, in history sometimes that was not always respected. Some of the identities, for those of you who are not super familiar or may have been to a Byzantine service, um, the use of leavened bread, something the yeast has always preserved. That really creeps some people out. Like the use of warm water, some people, which actually was prohibited in a number of areas and, and even parts of our own diocese today, there are priests who are trained under the old ways who still do not use the teplata or the zeon, which is just a fancy word for adding warm water to the chalice after the consecration. Some of that history within the Greek tradition came from the Greek way of serving wine, but some of it was adopted by the church because it saw that not only uh, was warmed wine a symbol of the warmth of the Holy Spirit, but blood is warm. There's all kinds of little things. Other aspects that are particular to our church and traditions, the preservation of allowing married men to continue uh, living with their wives after they're ordained. You know, here at Christendom, there's a great sadness every time a young man goes off to seminary because it's like, God, he's off the market. <laughs> Whereas in the old countries, when they find a young man's entered seminary, now the clock is ticking, he's got to make up his mind, and there's great rejoicing uh, sometimes. That's one way of kind of comically looking at it. Um, but some, some would say, well, where does this come from? So the apostles were married. The conception is when you're, you're married, when you're called, you're allowed to preserve that as the apostles then did. But even the Eastern churches later in the 5th, 6th centuries would expect celibacy for those who would be elevated to the rank of bishop. Also in Pope Benedict XIV's document, he talks about um, some of the beautiful history of the miracle behind um, the earthquakes at the time, I believe, in Constantinople from where the Trisagian hymn uh, was incorporated. And there's this interesting little quote that I highlighted the same Trisagian is sung in the Western Church in Greek and Latin on the Friday of Holy Week, but I think that dropped out after 1955. Um, my Latin liturgical history off the top of my head is not that flush, but even up until last century, the West preserved that aspect of Greek custom. Some other interesting practices that Benedict XIV talked about were these people should not be ordered to say the creed with the addition of the phrase, and the son. Now that is a tradition that scandalizes a lot of people today especially some that come to our church and you can hear like they're still saying and the son as we're moving on and stuff like that. And I'll get into the example of John Paul II and why I'm touching all of these things. 
One of the challenges is, though, let me ask, how many of you have ever prayed the rosary? Okay. What form of creed do you use when you pray the rosary? The Apostles' Creed. Why? Tradition. Lowercase t. It's what we always did. Does that mean you somehow does that mean that whoever uses the Apostles' Creed somehow rejects the defined teachings of the church? Or the defined creed, the developed creed? No. I would never tolerate that. Well, what about those who uh, none of the Catholic churches was incarnate of the ever virgin, immaculate, all assumed in it? Like none of that defined Catholic dogma is in the creed. Does that mean that the churches that don't put all of those dogmas in the creed, do they not respect papal teaching on those matters? No. A lot of it comes back to emphasis on custom. Now, at the time, Dr. Marshall was very generous in going into the history of the debates um, in as much of layman's language as possible, some of the issues within the Greek language of talking about the spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son were due to languages not being able to accommodate that expression of divine truth without making the Son and the Father equal and therefore causing some of the Greeks to believe that the Latins denied the monarchy of the Father that is often stated in the Roman Church's tradition of a principle uh, from a principle, the Son is a principle from a principle, and that there still is that monarchy of the Father. But that being said, with language debates aside, I think I've hopefully illustrated with even the practice of the rosary that when it comes to certain devotional customs or liturgical customs, just because we don't necessarily put every dogma explicitly in every aspect of our liturgy does not mean that we somehow reject everything that the church teaches. And Pope Benedict XIV saw this. He did say that those who would reject dogmatic teaching should be bound to it. One of the other things, too, and a great quote from the very end of it, his goal was that all people would become Catholic rather than everyone become Latin. And that goes back to that conception of Ezekiel that we began with at the very beginning. The whole goal of the church is ultimately to incorporate all nations into the saving message of Jesus Christ. The Pope of the East, Pope Leo XIII, and I hear the pins scraping of those who are here for extra credit. Um, one of his great quotes on St. Cyril Methodius, uh, originally I believe in the West, uh, St. Cyril Methodius was observed on July 7th, up until the Novus Ordo, I think now it's been moved to February the 14th. We will traditionally observe this um, date in the spring. Nothing in true faith or doctrine forbids us to sing the Mass in the Slavic language. And he goes into this whole history of these two brothers who wanted to bring the Christian mission to a part of the world where they could not handle the Latin. And you'll find this in the first millennium. So for those who would say, oh, for the love of God, we, and everything has to be in Latin, there's a historical issue there. One of his other documents, Preclara Gratulationis, talks about making an allowance for all that is good and right for the primitive traditions or customs of every nation. His most famous document that he was known for was Orientalum Dignitas. And it is quite beautiful. It comes around the time of... Uh, Eucharistic Congress, I believe, that was held in Jerusalem maybe the year before. And there's this emphasis of finding with Leo XIII this shift, this very clear shift in papal teaching away from a Benedict IV mindset that said the Roman Church is the preeminent one and is to be the preferred above all others. You find that Roman mindset in Roman documents definitively being 
put out to pasture with Leo the Thirteenth. This conception of a dignity for all of the churches, and he roots it in his document with the witness of the psalmist David, talking about the woman clothed with a garment of many colors. Pope Benedict the Fifteenth was known for establishing the Oriental Institute. I believe some of the details behind that were actually training Roman Catholic missionaries in being familiar with Eastern practices and. In hindsight, it's actually become a great course of learning for Easterners about our own self, as well as for mutual dialogue between members of the East, Catholic or Orthodox, and members of the West. Leads us up to Pius XI with a beautiful document on St. Josephat, who was known as the Martyr of Unity. The Ukrainian Catholic bishop was executed in 1623. One of the other documents that he was also known from was Rememorian Palin. I use this to kind of point to Kristen on my alma mater, because I was very beneficial. I was very blessed to have somebody such as Dr. Marshner, Andrew Hayes, a number of other Eastern Catholics. Father William, who was a Latin Rite monk and canon, able to introduce me to aspects of our own Catholic heritage. Nevertheless, it ought to be not to be too difficult to find a professor to teach the elements of the Greek sciences when the minds of all should be turned towards the east. No small uh, benefit should result. One of the other beautiful documents, and I wrote an article on this published overseas a couple of years ago. We have to think of what was going on in the world right now, 1944. How many of you are history majors, which is what I came to Christendom originally to be before I ran into Lord Marshner, and he stole me into theology. How many, what, what was going on in 1944? World War II. World War II. One in particular at the time that document was written the big event from the American standpoint of that happened in the middle of 44. D-Day, Normandy, two months before Normandy, you have a pope locked in the Vatican, the world literally gone to, insert vulgar word here, like the world has gone to, to absolute darkness. And he's writing this document in the context towards Greek Catholics and towards Greek Orthodox saying, we should have this be known by all, by those who were born within, within the bosom of the church, and Orthodox, those who are wafted towards her, the latter should have full assurance they will never be forced to abandon their legitimate rights or exchange their own venerable and traditional customs for Latin right ones. Indeed, the variety of rights and customs preserving inviolate what is most ancient and most valuable in each presents no obstacle to a true and genuine unity. You have the world at crisis and the Pope saying, as long as it keeps you in the church, like it is not offensive to the faith, just leave it alone. One of the other documents that he published a year later was talking about some of the issues, and there's a few documents I reference in my book, where although popes had been teaching of the equality of Eastern and Western churches for centuries, oftentimes members of the curia and local bishops would do everything they could to stamp them out. Uh, in my book, I look at some of the tragic history of satellite Croatia under the Nazis, under Ante Pavlik, with Franciscan clergy running death camps for Greek Orthodox where they were sending them and then prohibiting them from becoming Greek Catholic. They said, no, 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 the, bishop, the Roman Catholic bishops and the, the press at the time, no, no, they have to become Roman Catholic. They can't become Greek Catholic if they're going to convert. Other challenges in particular that uh, Cardinal Wilton Gregory wrote an article on about 25 years ago or so, many people don't realize he's one of the only Catholic bishops in the United States with a doctorate in sacred liturgy from Sant Anselmo. He wrote this beautiful article talking about 300,000 Greek Catholics who were driven into dissonance because their priests were not being given faculties to minister to their people. You could think of what's been going on with Ukraine in the past 
couple of years with people who do not speak any English coming here. Well, think of the migrations that were happening at the time period, and priests were being sent there. No, 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 you can't have faculties. You have to be Roman Catholic. So these are some of the tensions that even Pius XII recognized at the time period. This leads us up to Paul VI, Orientalum Ecclesiarum, and the withdrawal of the mutual excommunications with the Greek patriarch Athenagoras. You're like, wait a second, I thought this was a talk about St. John Paul II. And so now we're getting to that, but I want to try to build this picture, this worldview of not only the nature of the church and her succession, but also the history of the tensions and the struggles between her children. Uh, in Richard Gaiardi, I've heard it pronounced Gaiardi, some people call it Gaiardetz, uh, in one of his works on the Second Vatican Council, it's sad that even myself as a student of the class in Vatican II taught by a preeminent Roman Catholic priest, Father William Fitzgerald, did not even know this in our Vatican II class. One should not underestimate the practical impact of the daily practice of celebrating the Eucharist during Vatican II on a rotating basis in the different ritual traditions of the church. For many Roman Catholic bishops, this was their first exposure to what was an already existing diversity. Think about that. For the first time, you have Vatican II, which was what, 1960s? Before then was what? Students of history, church history. What was the previous council? When was that? Vatican I, and pretty much everybody that was involved there was dead. And it didn't last very long because of the outbreak of war. Before Vatican I, what was there? Very long time. So you have a complete lack of gathering of the world's bishops. And now in the 1960s, they are encountering different aspects of the Catholic faith that they would have never seen otherwise. Rubbing shoulders. One of the difficulties at the time period, and starting this, is, this kind of sits the background with our own particular church. In 1946, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was made illegal by the Soviet authorities. We all like to think, oh yeah, D-Day and then V-E-Day and we defeated Hitler and everything was great. Oh wait, there was the Cold War. But a lot of us don't really know the stories of Eastern Europe because a lot of that was incinerated, much in the same ways that the Nazis did to the Jews. The persecution of non-Christians, uh, especially non-Orthodox Christians, um, was ferocious. And in 1946, there was the pseudo-synod. Our church was declared illegal. Most of our bishops, our patriarch, our priests were arrested. Many of them died as martyrs that would eventually be um, beatified by John Paul II. All of our property was confiscated, and if you decided not to stay and minister at the risk of your life, you pretty much went and hid out in Rome. And one of the challenges at the time was, what, what was going on at the time period? Did any students of canon law at all in here? Have you guys talked about that at all in your theology courses? So 1917 was the first big universal code of canon law in the West, kind of when all of the local particular laws throughout the United States were put together, and everybody that lived at the time fell under that. So one of the challenges, the Eastern churches did not have a particular code that gave us specific protections. So one of the challenges at the time period was, well, if it's not in the code of canon law, we can't really do a whole lot about it. Some of the issues of Ostapolitik, which is just like a German word for looking towards the East or renewed friendship or renewed relations after World War II, was when our patriarch, uh, also later known as Joseph the Confessor, was still in prison during the initial sessions of Vatican II. Freed, interestingly enough, due to backdoor efforts of John XXIII and JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So if you think of everything that's going on in the world, 
and John the 23rd was laboring to get him released from the concentration camp. He was brought back, eventually allowed to be exiled in Rome, but one of the challenges was that he was no longer in his patriarchal territory. It's an eastern church outside of its territory, so he didn't really have the protections of law to govern his particular church. And throughout the 1960s and all the way up until the election of John Paul II, whenever he would try to hold synods to implement Vatican II's call for renewal within the eastern churches, to deal with the change of liturgical books, to deal with finances, to deal with seminary formation, to do what all of the Roman Catholics had the ease of being able to do at the local level after Vatican II of making updates and changes, he had no legal authority to convoke a synod because he was not in his homeland, because it was still illegal to be in his homeland. So a lot of the bishops were prohibited by some of the Roman authorities at the time period. And even if they did show up, the canon lawyers would say, it's a conference. It's not a synod. You have no legal authority. You're not in Ukraine. In 1977, our patriarch would write in his last testament um, that he would uncover details of a secret agreement between a Roman official or officials in Moscow that led him to believe the ability for uh, his succession of the Ukrainian Catholic Church to exist um, would be in danger, and he secretly consecrated three bishops without Rome's approval in that year, one of whom would later be appointed the patriarch of our church by John Paul II, interestingly enough. Not necessarily giving an endorsement to that, it's just a historical fact. John Paul II, even at the time, is like, yeah, that can be forgiven. No worries. I just won't nominate him, but we'll get to that story in a little bit. Some of the other things going on in our particular Catholic church at the time period, uh, this was a, a theologian that's written a number of articles and logos. In the 1970s, I can still remember the Slavonic liturgy sung by the people, and by that I mean the practice was a wholesale imitation of the Vatican II low mass, where the priest and server recited the liturgy and everybody else did their own thing. A full 10 years after the Novus Ordo, we were imitating the Latin practice no longer in use. So this idea that Vatican II happens and everything in the East has always been well and always will be well is a challenge. For many Eastern Catholics, the ability for married men to be ordained, the ability for children to receive chrismation, First Communion, were still prohibited by law, even though we have demonstrated clearly through the teachings of the Church that those customs of ours should have been allowed to be practiced because they were ancient Catholic customs once observed by both East and West. Father Robert Taft, who was kind of a firebrand in the Ukrainian Catholic Church and a great historian, said that this mindset is that some clergy see, some Eastern clergy see their history as going from schism to reunion, and therefore in reunion we must become Latin and adopt practices. And he says that's not really what the Catholic Church teaches, and I hope I've kind of illustrated that point. This leads us up to the mindset right here of 1979 with what was going on with John Paul II. So you have at that time period in the 60s and 70s, Eastern Catholic churches who still had difficulty in law being able to rule themselves, still had difficulty in law being able to change their liturgical books to fulfill the wishes of the Second Vatican Council. You had challenges of them observing practices of their own custom as the great example of why if we do this, well, then the Greeks will want to become Catholic. The Orthodox will want to become Catholic. John Paul II comes on the stage. Slavic Pope, as I titled him. <clears throat> and in November of 1969, he officiated in Old Slavonic without the filioque, the concert to concelebrate with our patriarch to ordain one of our bishops. 
using the liturgical books that many of the local Catholic clergy may or may not have been practicing themselves. Ukrainian Catholic clergy may not have been practicing. So you have this struggle for this tension to reclaim our own identity, to restore the practices that were truly Catholic and Eastern. In the face of unjust laws, one of the things John Paul II would do would be in the face of Roman canonists saying, well, you're Ukrainian clergy, you're outside of Ukraine, you have no legal authority. He says, well, I'm the Pope. We're convoking synods on my own authority, and you can sort out whatever you need to sort out. So you have this development, his own initiative of enabling the largest of the Eastern Catholic churches to function in a place where there was, by the letter of the law, an inability for them to do everything that had been promised by popes and councils for centuries. One of the other things that was addressed at the time period <clears throat> was the succession of the leaders. And shortly after this, in the 80s, he would choose to send emissaries both to not only Moscow with the Russians, but he would choose to celebrate the thousand-year feast with the Ukrainian church and not with Moscow, because Moscow was a daughter church of Kyiv, not the other way around. I know that really offends some people, but Patriarch of Moscow came centuries after the Church of Kiev, founded by St. Vladimir. In 1995, he wrote this beautiful apostolic letter, celebrated the 400th anniversary of the reunion of Brest. And you can still find on YouTube videos of the old Slavonic liturgies in Rome. Something that I talk about in my book that popes had prohibited centuries before then. Well, we can have a Greek college, but you have to celebrate everything in the Latin Mass. One of the other great examples that he gave was during the Marian year from 87 to 88, where he joined in observing the Akathis, Vespers, the Coptic Church's Insensation Prayer, and the Divine Liturgy. And the two benefits that Mark Marzoli makes is that, one, it's a solidarity. He's saying, you're legitimately Catholic. These are authentically Catholic practices. But he's also saying, this is the book you should be following, not the stuff that may be outdated in your local particularities. One of the challenges recently at the last uh, deacons conference that we had was one of our deacons was griping at his part of the diocese where he's like, they're still using the old creed that even the Roman Catholics don't do, that like ISIL like abandoned when they redid the translation, you know, one in being with the Father instead of like of one substance. And so you find this habit that sometimes changed restoration is not something that happens overnight. And I make the case in my book, there's reasons for that. One of the other beautiful witnesses of him, and this really is kind of a hidden story, as I had mentioned with the, the secret consecrations of three bishops by our patriarch, <clears throat> because of concerns of a secret alliance between some of the uh, Roman authorities in Moscow trying to force Greek Catholics to become Roman Catholics again, uh, and to allow the Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church to just be dissolved. Uh, one of the things was in the 1990s, one of the Vatican bureaucracies appointed what's known as the Quadri uh, Quadripartite Commission that had ethnic Ukrainians, members of the UGCC, Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and the Vatican. But a lot of the figures in this Vatican Commission banned the, worst of the use of the word Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. We cannot do that. No, 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 no. And... Um, we can't have that in discussions. It has to be Christians of the Byzantine tradition. Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, no, no, no. Because you remember, the church was still legal at this point. John Paul, is, uh, our patriarch, gets up and walks out and says, I'm done with this. The commission ends up being cast on the junk pile. 
John Paul II summons worldwide all of the Ukrainian Catholic bishops to Rome, has his photo taken with him, and eventually appoints one of those secretly consecrated bishops as a special consultor to the Vatican, and years later makes him the head of our particular church because he saw the tensions of the hostility towards a form of Catholicism that was not Roman. Some of his documents that he would write, and they're just beautiful quotes, I, I strongly, in the most profound words, recommend you read these documents. Orientale Lumen especially, but also the 1996 liturgical instruction. He talks in ways that you, to most Roman Catholics that I knew early on as a convert before coming to Christendom, even here, the idea about talking about the Eastern Catholic churches or even parts of the Eastern Orthodox Church as being a legitimate heritage of Christ's church was unsettling. And you find yet those words being used by John Paul II. He also talks about the profound interest that members of the West will not really understand themselves without studying the East. Why? What is he getting at? How, how can he say something like, you can't really understand your own, I'm paraphrasing here, you can't really understand your own identity until you study the East. Well, how, can, how can a pope say something like that? Why? What, what is, to paraphrase a Christian motto, like, what is the essence of being a Christian? The essence philosophically of being a Christian. What should no Christian be afraid of ever? Bringing one's faith into any corner of the world. Yes, I'm going somewhere else, though. That is true, but I'm going somewhere else. Absolutely. No Christian should ever be scandalized by the truth because it is the God truth that we believe in. No Christian should ever be ashamed of laying claim to truth no matter where it is. And sometimes without that study of aspects of truth, the difficulties of Eastern Christianers, it can sometimes be difficult to understand our own struggles in the West today. You think of Vatican II writing at the time of intercommunion with the Orthodox. And some Roman traditionalists today would say well, the Vatican II was an error, blah, blah, blah. There's no way the Pope was off his rocker. See, you know, long live, you know, the Latin Mass. You have St. Pius V. And I'm like, well, you do realize that, like, the prayers, behold, the Lamb of God was inserted in the 18th century. It was not in the Missal of the Pius V. Like, changes have happened since Trent. Well, one of the things going on at this time period in these churches is that we must not be afraid of truth wherever they are found. Some of the other quotes from Orientale Lumen, the, Ishtin, the Christian East has always proved to contain a wealth of forms capable of assuming these. He talks about the emphasis of Trinitarian life. If you ever go, you know, I, I, I joke, uh, I worked um, as an ER chaplain briefly in Atlanta during COVID, uh, during seminary. And one of the guys was like, man, you Catholics and your acrobatics. And I'm like, yeah, and Romans say the same thing when they come to a Greek liturgy. Because it's like, when are you going to stop, like, you know, blessing yourselves? And oh, it's like, you know, the Roman Catholics come there and they're like, man, I, I don't know I can do that. It's a little. But one of the interesting things is if you watch and participate in our liturgies, there is a huge difference in our words about God. We have this emphasis on the Trinity, but we also have this emphasis on the unknowability about God. And John Paul II talks about this. He also spends a great portion of his document talking about Eastern monasticism. If any of you have never studied it, I recommend it. And 
That's what I just talked about there. <clears throat> One of the things that he identifies most uniquely, and th this was quite scandalous to me the first time I read it, um, moreover, in the East, the monasticism was not seen as a separate condition, but rather as the reference point for all of the baptized. It's not us and them. They do their own holiness thing, and we do the bare minimum, if we even do that anymore. But he talks a lot about the particular unity within Eastern monasticism that never diverged out like it did in the West. And some of the other interesting things, and I'll read this whole quote because I just I can't make up words for this. Within this framework, liturgical prayer in the East shows a great aptitude for involving the human person in his or her totality. The mystery is sung in the loftiness of content, but also in the warmth of the sentiments. This total involvement of the person in his rational and emotional aspects, in ecstasy and in imminence, is of great interest and in a wonderful way to understand the meaning of created realities. The liturgy reveals that the body, through the mystery of the cross, is in the process of transfiguration, of being born again into the spirit. And on Mount Tabor, Christ showed us his body radiant as the Father wants it to be again. And so this is John Paul II talking, saying, this is our Catholic faith. This is not Greek orthodoxy that's somehow at odds with the West. This is a legitimate view and understanding that complements our own Western conception of the church. Other things that he talks about in this document is the importance of us being faithful to our own traditions. I mean, think of how many of you, when you leave Christendom, will no longer have a bubble to hide in. You will maybe go to some place in the South where you're lucky to find one of four practicing Catholics in your entire industry. Think of the identity struggles you're going to go through. And John Paul II is talking about this to the Easterners. Reclaim your identity. Reclaim your inheritance. Do not be afraid. He also talks about, and conversion is required of the Latin church, so that she may respect and understand the East. The way that I would explain this in, in layman's language, working in South Atlanta, is um, <clears throat> how do I invite somebody to have faith in Jesus Christ if I can't even make sure that I'm using the words that they would understand from where they were born and raised in their landlocked part of Atlanta? How can I invite someone to salvation in Christ if I have no idea of the struggles of poverty, racism, personal struggle, conflict, all of the human sentiments, right? It is that conception of I have to try to put myself in their shoes. And that is what John Paul II is talking about here. We as Christians, in order to maintain and achieve the goal of unity that Christ so wanted for his church, we can't but begin that if it's not in charity, if it's not in understanding, and if it's not in, you know, and allowing other people, like I beg my wife all the time to say, like, sweetie, I'm just going to rough draft this. And if you think I need to rephrase what I said, I'll tweak it afterwards. Right? We need to have those conversations with our separated Christian brethren. How do we do that if we have no understanding of their background, of their own biases, of their own fears, of their own personal stories? Towards the end of the document <clears throat> of Oriental Lumen, John Paul II talks about one important way is to grow a mutual understanding and unity, and he talks about knowing the liturgy of the Eastern churches, spiritual traditions of the fathers and doctors, talks about training in specialized institutions, but he also says, and with appropriate teaching on these subjects at seminaries and Christendom College, especially in future priests. These are profound words that are often overlooked sometimes, I think. One of the other letters that he wrote, and this is getting towards the end, <clears throat> was the apostolic letter for the 400th year of the reunion when the Ukrainian Catholic Church was reborn in 
we became reunited with Rome. And he talks about the martyrdom of St. Joseph at, persecutions experienced by our metropolitan Joseph Schlippe. Talks about, interestingly enough, the time of trial during the atheist persecution. What is he talking about here? What was going on? I mean, this is 95, but he's talking about Vatican II and religious freedom. And this may context um, the document on religious freedom a little bit from you. So for those of you that are taking your quizzes right, what, what is the historical issue that the fathers of Vatican II were thinking of when they said, yes, Catholics can have limited intercommunion with the Orthodox? Nazism and communism. Yeah, what happens if you're a Catholic in a country, Ukraine at the time period, in the 1950s or 60s, during the council where it's illegal to be a Greek Catholic. Can you go to any valid order at all, if that's all you can get access to? Catholics today in China, where do you go to communion? I'm going anywhere that's valid, anywhere that has some connection with the apostolic succession. And so when you look at Vatican II's document, it's not saying now the Orthodox are all Catholic and we have to He's not saying that. The fathers weren't saying that. They're saying in various parts of the world, the Catholic Church suffers underground. And at a certain standpoint, if you don't have access to a Catholic priest, east or west, there's nothing in sin participating in those who do have valid succession in the Eucharist until you can be reunited and participating in the body of Christ. So also with religious freedom, one of the challenges at the time with the Ukrainian Catholic Church was dealing with an atheistic regime and we're trying to have this vision of religious freedom, not freedom to do whatever you want, but the mere ability to be a Christian under an atheistic Soviet regime. So those are some viewpoints, I hope, that kind of context what are otherwise sometimes very hostile interpretations of Vatican II on religious freedom. It wasn't, hey, you can do whatever you want and believe whatever. You don't have to believe what the church teaches. It's like, no, there is a fundamental necessity because people are struggling in prison right now for their Greek Catholic faith, for their Catholic faith. And that was talked about by John Paul II here. He talks about connecting with them, <clears throat> being witnesses of their sacrifice, and interestingly enough, now that the chains of imprisonment have been broken in the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine has become able to breathe. What do you think has been on the, number of, on the minds of a number of Ukrainian Catholics since 2014 with the annexation of the Crimea today? Many of them are wondering, what is our faith to remain Catholic going to cost us? If you guys want to take a picture of this, there's a little QR code for the liturgical instruction. It's hosted at EWTN's website. It goes through and lays down a lot of an explanation of things such as our particular devotionals, aspects of our liturgy, and I'll, I'll pull a quote I wanted to today like I did earlier in reading from our office of the entrance to Theotokos, <clears throat> read from you a, a quote of a priestly prayer that is said during the Christian initiation. Because the East preserves to this day, both the Eastern Catholic Churches and the Eastern Orthodox, preserve to this day the connection of all three sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, from infancy. And it was one of the things that the Fathers encouraged us at Vatican II to restore. So this is a priestly prayer. Lord and Master, God of our fathers, you sent those in Noah's Ark, a dove bearing an olive branch. In its beak is a sign of reconciliation and salvation from the flood thereby prefiguring the mystery of your grace. You have given us olive oil for the celebration of your holy mysteries. By the anointing with olive oil, you filled those under the law with the Holy Spirit, and now by this anointing, you bring to perfection those under grace. Bless now this oil, 
by the power, the working, and the descent of your Holy Spirit, that it may be an ointment of incorruption, a weapon of righteousness, the renewal of soul and body, the expulsion of every diabolic activity, for deliverance from all evils from those anointed with it in faith, or taste it unto your glory. And he continues on. But that is a profound insight. If you study the rituals, not just, well, this is, you know, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we have to use this, but when you study, like, the liturgical words of the various churches, you'll find that in the East, particularly in the churches that use the Greek tradition, there's this whole vision of Noah and the flood. And if you turn back to that biblical example, you can understand the worldview for why many Easterners have always viewed all three sacraments of the initiation to be preserved, as the West did for the first 13, 14, 15 centuries in various parts of the world. And part of that was they saw the flood of Noah. Sin is washed away. But there's this symbolism, there's this incarnational truth that is found also in the story of Noah, because the story of Noah doesn't end with the destruction of the world and sin. It continues with the dove bringing the olive branch, the sign of chrismation or confirmation, and is ultimately completed when Noah disembarks and sets up the altar and offers the Eucharistic sacrifice, or the prefigurement of what would be the Eucharistic sacrifice upon the altar. There is this profound symbolism of the Christian faith that can be found in these various rituals. And I, that is just one example of like, well, you're trying to understand why are Greeks or why are uh, Syro-Malabars or why do those of the Maronite have these customs. Try to dig into the Old Testament, New Testament, early church vision of Christ that they had in approaching these holy mysteries. One of the other documents I would strongly recommend you guys looking into, uh, this was written, written by our curtain, current metropolitan up in Philadelphia at the time was Father Boris Budziak. Um, this is a free online 30-page account of the 28 martyrs beatified by John Paul II in his visit to Ukraine in 2001. Many of them married priests who were executed by Soviet authorities, nuns, one cantor, uh, profound examples of Christian charity and proficient Christian perseverance amidst persecution. And again, last year I sent this one that some of you may probably, I don't think I met, it was mentioned in my intro. From time to time, I also assist with the ordinariate. Um, and I sent this to one of my ordinariate priest friends, the article, and he's like, well, but the article's all in Ukrainian. I don't read that. And I'm like, besides Google Translate, I'm like, at least the photographer took all the pictures in English. You'll be fine. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, centuries ago, you have people saying this could never happen. And you have a profound witness for charity and unity in Christ. Like, with us being faithful to our own traditions, being tolerant of the West with their traditions, and asking the same of them, what better example is there of an incentive for the Orthodox to become Catholic again? And we see, in principle, the teachings there. But what is the example that we will live, that we will foster, that we will tolerate? of our own particular priests and our children. Are you like some Catholics I know that may or may not be related to us that will shuttle you right out the door because you're not Roman Catholic, you're Greek, and that smells of suspicion. What will you do in your own lives when you leave Christendom? And that leads us into kind of the final thing of questions. Um, does anyone have any questions about, have any of you heard about the Judas Bell? Has anyone heard of the Judas Bell? Raise their hand, besides my wife. One person in the back, yes. The Judas Bell, yeah.
Yeah, in, in some of the Greek, if you look at the censers that are, in, in the east, the deacon is the censer. In the west, a lot of the times it's reserved to the priest for the most part. There's subtle differences there, but in the traditional Byzantine uh, Greek tradition, censers, there's 12 bells. In some customs, take the jingler out of the bell because it symbolizes Judas. Why? Because although he did not manifest the glory of God in his spirit, his very existence points to God's creation and God's glory. So, there, you know, there's like little subtle incarnations. And, you know, a lot of people like to get caught up in, well, you just want Mary priest in this. And it's like in the various customs throughout centuries and throughout the course of the world, as we go back to that picture, there's various ways that the truth of Christ and of the apostles and of the early church is still preserved. And these are things that we want to try to understand, not necessarily to adopt, but at least to be sensitive and understand that, well, they share the same truth as us. Various aspects of vestments in, in the liturgy called the prothesis or proskomenia. There's different kind of words because we use leavened bread that has to be prepared. The nine fragments off to the right symbolize the orders of the angels and of the saints and the commemoration of the living and the dead. And as the bread is being carved up, there's a spear that pierces the leavened bread. And there's all of these beautiful prayers. Like when we talk about reclaiming our identity, that is a particular right for preparation, for preparing what will become the Eucharist that was often cast aside because, well, we want to dress like Latins. We want to do Latin things or, you know, when in Rome, do as Rome does. But when we're in the West, you know, do we struggle to try to preserve our own identity? Any other questions? What do you guys have? I'm here for y'all. And for those of you that are here for the extra credit, you're free to go. Believe me, I have plenty of students that just show up for promotional credit, so at work. Yes, go ahead. So the Orthodox have a way of calling the Roman right Catholics Roman in the same way that Calvinists and a lot of Protestants have. They'll say Roman, Roman, Roman as a way as kind of an insult, but also as a way of kind of showcasing that, that Roman paganism or Roman empire-esque authority kind of corrupted Rome and the Catholic Church. That has been because the, the Byzantines have, and the Econorthodox have a way of saying that the same way that, that Calvinists and Lutherans do all the time. It, it's interesting because, uh, Connie, you may be able to speak a little better with this on me, but um, in this part of the world, the Greeks are called Roman Catholics because when the capital was moved to Constantinople, that was the new Rome. So it, it's ironic that some Orthodox will say that, and it's like, but you do realize that, like, the Belkites will consider themselves Roman Catholics because Constantinople was the, the hub of the empire after it became uh, the imperial seat of Rome. You, you know, and it's, you know, it, and um, interestingly enough, I realize this stuff's being recorded. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, the term Roman Catholic in and of itself was kind of like a derisive slur um, as like a form of like papists and stuff like that. And you'll find that traditionally it's more accurate to call you like Latin Catholics. Like the Greeks will more often call you Latin Catholics than Roman Catholics. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Anybody else have any questions? Like, I'm not Sheldon, I don't, I had somebody, I was, I was celebrating Pascha uh, with the ordinary because we did not have a vigil, don't get me started on that. Uh, we didn't have a vigil, um, and some guy came up to me and he's like, when in the year is this hymn said in this part of the services? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm like, I'm here to celebrate Easter with my family, I'm not a walking encyclopedia. Um, but no, seriously, what, what do you guys have questions, stuff you'd like to, to learn? Well, I have just a comment and then a question. Please, go ahead. Mm -hmm. 
very similar contraction to say the seventh century stone missile from America. Yes, yes. Which probably goes back early in the seventh century. But the question is, how can people get a copy of your book? Uh, ecpubs.com. I also have some here if you want to save on shipping. I think they still have it for 20 bucks. So you have some I have some copies that if you want to catch me afterwards or I can sign them. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> she, I did not plant her. <laughs> Katie? No. Um, no. Did you put her up? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, any other questions? What, like, what? Yes, please go ahead. You listed many uh, reasons why there was Yes, and actually, um, uh, Father Cyril Korolevsky would say that, that that is like one of the ongoing issues because ultimately what happens is um, <clears throat> whether it's the Maronites, which were a large, uh, by far and large, one of the largest communities that have always been Catholic but have never struggled with this. When you look at a lot of the Eastern churches, historically, they're very small sections of their community or of their country. And so with, until... Uh, East and West is properly united. And now you say, well, which one of the East and West? Because aren't there like 16 autocephalous like, you know, heads within orthodoxy? But until there is a larger reunion, the tension is always going to be, um, who, am, who am I identifying myself with? And that tension is why Eastern Catholics have very often abandoned their own practices or put them background. We've abandoned practices such as pre-sanctified or various Lenten observances in order to adopt Stations of the Cross and other things because we identify ourselves with the Catholic Church that often protected us in our homeland. And so the problem is until there is greater unity, there's always going to be that tension. You find this uh, in many regards today in communities uh, such as uh, the Fraternity or the Institute of Christ the King where you have this identity tension of, well, like, I'm trying to preserve this more ancient tradition of the Roman West um, and also still being in union, and there's this tension of like, well, what do I, that's like just kind of an imperfect example of issues that the East has dealt with, of what does it really mean to be Catholic? Um, and it's, it's, it's not something that's easily resolved, unfortunately, until, God willing, everybody comes back, you know, into the church. And a ball of fire at the end of the world, sorry. <laughs> Dr. Uh, JC, yes. Please, go ahead. So, uh, a common top out back to the you know like the fifteen hundreds liturgy or the seventeen hundreds liturgy or back again and again to like as a remedy for liturgical abuse found in like the Novus Ordo and so on or like just saying we need to have just the Latin Mass only. And that's when the Orthodox will say we'll join us and we have like we're free of anything and everything with problems, you know. Like do you free of problems when I sorry go ahead. And then it's like, wait, I thought you guys follow the canon of the Council of Nicaea that prohibits kneeling. Why are you kneeling in your Orthodox church when Nicaea explicitly prohibited it? I'll find like Orthodox churches that do like kneeling, you know, like outside of Great Lent and other sermons. Like, wait, that's not really Greek. No, it, it, unfortunately that does kind of become a pejorative. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't wish to overlook that. I think Joseph Ratzinger, both in his public writings as Pope Benedict XVI, but also in a number of his private writings, um, articulated that um, there are difficulties within the West when it comes to like going forward. Um, I believe privately Ratzinger circulated 
um, <clears throat> a few years before he was elected, his own personal opinion that the West should have one right within the tradition of what was handed down, but incorporating a lot of things from the newer rights. And some people go, why didn't he force it on the church? And I'm like, exactly, that's the point, because you don't go about, uh, and far as Father Cyril Korleski, and I talk about this in my book, a number of them have made the case that when it comes to change, even if it's for the better, it has to be something generational, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And for those that would say, well, Ratzinger must not have been really that conservative about the Latin Mass, I'm like, I think he was pastoral. I think he realizes that we don't want to be driving people out of the church for the sake of an intellectual ideal. Um, we don't want to leave the members of the mystical body out, so to speak, and we don't want to be leaders, which with my background in leadership, we, we don't want to be making decisions and telling you what to do, because if you're not understanding the why, ultimately you're not able to make it your own and able to pass it on for yourselves. Leadership-wise, if all I do is just tell you to shut up and do what you're told, then when you become a leader, all you know how to do is tell other people to shut up and do what they're told, but you also don't really know how to go about creating the conditions within yourself or others of the ability to take over when you're gone. Now, that's just secular leadership. The good thing is the church has the Holy Spirit to assist us within this, but he also doesn't deny our humanity in, in that role as well. Uh, any other questions? Please, go ahead. Um, so when it comes to, how, I, if I understand it correctly, I pretend I'm Roman Catholic, what do I do now? Um, first one is it's, it's a couplefold, right? You have the heart, you have the mind, you have the body. Um, encounter the services. Uh, Holy Transfiguration at the time when my wife and I were up here at college uh, is still, was still one of the hands down probably best parishes that exemplify um, Eastern practice. Part of that is the presence of the deacon. Um, if you look at St. Joachim Nan, the Ukrainian Catholic Church in town, they don't have a deacon. And it's very hard, looking at the Byzantine liturgy, to really appreciate its fullness and its, dynam its dynamism or its dynamic without a deacon, because the priest just does all the parts of it. And in Byzantine symbolism, the deacon is Jesus Christ in the spirit, because the deacon is the one sent from the Father in the holy place out amongst the world, leading men to join to the Father and then back in and back out. And like you lose some of that symbolism sometimes. And, lower services. So the, the first one would be make a Sunday trip. I used to do that when I was here. Others uh, inspired me to do that before my time and did the same. Uh, study, petition your faculty and your professors, hey, we'd like more talks on this or we'd like a class on this. Dr. Marshall was great at office hours of going into anything and everything, uh, and particularly with the Melkite Church or um, with the Greek Orthodox Church in general. Uh, the other one is realize that we live in a broken society. And it's, it's one of the challenges our, our patriarch's uh, brother, uh, Sivalod, gave our diaconal retreat last year, and he's like, you know, not everything's perfect. So when it comes to, well, I go to this church, and well, they do it this way, and it should, like, there's, there's a certain, like, living with grace and charity and just kind of expect, accepting that the East, just like the West, has its own series of flaws and its own challenges. Um, but one would be reading, two would be an encounter, um, 
Three would be, you can always marry a Greek Catholic girl. I mean, I'm just, I didn't, but, you know, my wife did. So um, as, as far as the other question with, uh, would you re repeat your second part? Um, so, so I work in the South, right, and I work in a public safety profession um, in a part of the country that used to beat and abuse blacks. And I go into parts of Atlanta where I work, and like, for me to open my mouth and try to pretend that I have a clue psychosocially of the upbringing or the, the social fear of generations that may still be present in the home that remember those days, like admitting my own ignorance is sometimes the biggest thing to do, and then start trying to learn that history. Um, when you're trying to evangelize or encounter Greeks, treat them as human beings and friends first, even if they may not. Um, uh, but two, try to understand like the motives, the why. Uh, in the leadership courses that I teach, one of the big things is if you, if you focus on the hopes and the fears, like the motives and the demotivators, um, if you can kind of get down to that like intentionality of the why um, behind their concerns or their expectations that we always like to cloud it, like not like Downton Abbey where we're English, but we're, uh, most Americans are not that like reserved. But we do try to hide that and trying to uncover that is huge when it comes to interpersonal evangelization. We're dealing with actual people with personal stories. And if we don't take that into account, um, we, we, we're treating them like a robot. Any, any other questions, comments, or? Yes, please. Hey, I give them as due diligence, right? I, when I teach my classes, uh, one of the questions I ask is, why are you here? And like half of them are like promotional requirement for my job. And I'm like, okay, I've been there, it's fine. I at least want to try to get somebody to enjoy it. So what do, you, what, what do we think, can I have the audience take a guess, what do we think is the doctrinally mother of all churches? Who resolves the disputes? Who in the, who in the apostles? spoke the truth about Jesus Christ to clarify what was necessary for our salvation. Thank you. Now, why does John Paul II, because it's interesting, because if you look at Benedict XIV's document, he says, well, Rome is like the teacher and mother of all churches. You're like, eh, it's kind of mistaken. Why did J.P. Coos say that Jerusalem was? Mother. There was one last supper, and it was in the upper room. And after that, it all became mangled and gentilized. And non Judaized. You know. No, but Jerusalem, and it's interesting if you look, um, for instance, you go back to this section, some people will say, well, see, the East can never adopt anything from the West or vice versa. I go, well, like, you know, the Church of Constantinople used to be like a nothing village before it became the city of the Roman Empire. And if you look at the liturgy of, of, of the Greek church, there are two major influences kind of the monastic office and the cathedral office. Um, but there's this beautiful part called the Lamplighting Psalms. Uh, and towards the end of the lamplighting psalms, there's this prayer that the Byzantine church still preserves, uh, written at the time period of the end of the first, beginning of the second century, that is believed to have originally come from Jerusalem. And if I can find it here, eventually, called the O Gladsome Light or O Joyful Light. Like that is a Jerusalem prayer. Uh, o joyful light, light and holy glory of the Father immortal, the heavenly holy, the blessed one, O Jesus Christ, 
Now that we have reached the setting of the sun and seen the evening light, we sing to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for it's fitting at all times to raise a song of praise and measured melody to you, O Son of God, the giver of life. Behold, the universe sings your glory. Like that is a prayer from the Jerusalem church that we still preserve in the Byzantine church. Uh, and I should have done this earlier before some people started scattering out. Do you mind if we finish with a prayer briefly? <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly King, Advocate, Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and fill all things, treasury of blessing, bestower of life, come dwell within us, cleanse us of all that defiles us, and, O good one, save our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Any other questions? Comments, concerns, you're welcome to stay and socialize. I think the serving of the alcohol can begin now.